listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, welcome to this week's RC podcast covering digital cinematography. This week we're going to be covering the new Sony NEX FS700, as well as the new uh, Phantom camera. Uh, we've got some great interviews in the Red Room. I'm joined in the studio by Jason Wingrove. How are you, Jason? Hello. I'm hatching out of my egg, <laughs> my over. This is, uh, of course, the FX Guides RC podcast. It's our role here at the RC to uh, mine the news, filter the blogs, go through everything that uh, we can, maybe go down to some rat holes, because basically this is the camera tech that Jason and I discuss, obsess about, um, argue about, work out, play with, and screw around with. And this is a conversation we want you to be a part of. So, Jason, what's happening in the news this week? And now, the RC News. Well, an interesting tactic from Sony um today bringing out the fs 700 a new camera which really we're only a few days away from nab so um uh, i just wondered why they wouldn't do it at the show anyway maybe they've got other things maybe they've got something else happening yeah maybe, got other maybe they decided to bring it out today because today is the rc's fourth birthday Ah, yes it is four years ago you foolishly said yes that's a good idea why not, Jason? Let's do that. Apparently, went for thirty-seven minutes back in the day. Is that right? <laughs> yeah. How is that possible? I went. I, I could. I couldn't listen to it really. Uh, I, I listened to it on and off, but it was. I think we were talking about the big gear at that time was an on-off switch for the red one. Okay. Huge news. As opposed um, to Epic Scarlet's five D Mark II's yep. Genesis Phantoms, there was, there was, I think there was just the Genesis and uh, Red One was really, and even Red One was starting to roll out four years ago. I guess it was you had only just got yours. I know that it was before we had a hard drive for it. Right. It was only running on CF cards. How the hell did you record anything? CF cards. Oh, yeah, of course. Remember we used to put CF cards in? That's right, the little CF cards. You could fit a whole, like, shoot on one of those little It's so hard to imagine putting a CF card (laughs) in a red one, but that's true. Now, of course, those CF cards have grown up. Yes, They're a couple of grand. Yes. (laughs) Not as expensive as the ones on the F65, but that's another story. No. So tell us about this Sony um, NEX uh, birthday present. Yes. How much is it? Uh, 10K is the approximate price. And uh, what we're seeing is, you know, at least Australian prices and US prices sort of starting to come close. Nothing firm at this stage, but um, approximate release is around about June. Very similar to the FS100. Uh, I guess it's a bit of an upgrade to the 100, and it seems like it's a, a... quite a worthy one considering the it's about only about four grand more than the uh, 100 but uh, there's a lot more camera there really still super 35 sensor uh sony e-mount as the fs100 is but uh, there's now a couple of options for that you can get the uh sony alpha mount which is their stills mount so you can put a lot of the sony stills lenses which are beautiful beautiful glass um, if you haven't got investment in any other glass uh, manufacturer. But there's also the excellent, which we haven't really covered in this show, which we should do at some stage, is the Metabones. Metabones make this excellent adapter which allows you to use um, Canon glass on the uh, Sony E-mounts. So the camera will actually talk to the lens and uh, let you adjust iris and stuff, etc. So I haven't really di- delved too much into that mount, but uh, it's great to not actually just have to have a manual uh, lens, uh, manual iris lens. Uh, so it's a Sony, a Sony E-mount. 
now, the interesting thing is 4K ready is what this camera is. We knew there was something coming that was maybe 4K for, for Sony. Uh, but they recording called 4K but not outputting? 4K or? ready. Well, uh, 4 I, I, it really should be probably called 4K capable or 4K upgradable. So at the moment, out of the box, when it, when it, when it, uh, when it, when it ships, it will be um, 1080p um, with an option to upgrade to uh, 4K uh, at a later date, within the probably within the first year of release. So um, yes, 1080p to begin with. But uh, the interesting thing is frame rates. I think in terms of this codex and uh, the way it records, it's still going to record to the um, Sony, the Memory Stick Pro, or to SD cards. It's still going to work in the same way. It's still going to work with the um, the FMU128, which is this nice little dockable flash unit. Thing. Mm-hmm. So it's still going to work the same way. It's still kind of the same form factor. Um, but, but it's also going to have the SD memory stick kind of thing? Yeah, exactly. It's still mm-hmm. going to go to that, that same format or go to, to this, this flash memory unit. And still going to record uh, AVC HD. And I believe the, the bit rate, etc., is going to be unchanged. But uh, frame rates have been added to it, which is quite interesting. It'll do... Uh, now I've got to work out some of this stuff. This is quite complicated. The frame rates. So is this uh, one of these sixty frames a second at seven twenty p things? It'll do. Yeah, exactly. It'll do. No, but then it's a little bit more complicated than that. But I'm hoping the results will will will, will be a little less complicated. It'll do one hundred and twenty frames a second at uh, full HD, up to sixteen seconds. Now I'm presuming that's uh, shooting sixteen seconds, not a final footage sixteen <laughs> seconds, of course. Yeah. Um, and 240 frames at full HD up to an eight-second burst, which is quite a, a decent burst. 240 is a good frame rate? Yep. Uh, it's a bloody good frame rate for full HD. Mm. Um, now, it will do a couple of other frame rates where you're still – the surprising thing is that you're still actually going to end up with kind of uh, 1080, but it's how it kind of gets there. It looks like it's always going to be doing 1920 horizontally but it looks like it's line skipping or it's skipping the readout um vertically to reduce to vertical resolution i guess to be able to get through the information so it's like, yeah. yeah it's ver- reducing vertical resolution by the look of it so it'll do uh four- 1480 frames per second sorry did you say 1480 frames per second uh up to uh, in like a nine second burst but it does that at 1920 by 432 so what they call skipped readout. So it gets interpolated back up to 1920 by 1080. It'll do 960 frames a second up to about a 19-second burst, and it'll do that at 1920 by 216. Oddly, so let's see if I've got this, this right. So I've got a 1920 seems by 1080. Seems weird that there's actually less for for the for the for the for the lower frame rate of 960. Uh, it's doing 1920 by 216, and that gets again interpolated back up to to 1920 1080. Um, okay, mm. but that high rate at the mm. 1400. Let's call it 1500 for yeah. conversation. At 1500 frames a second, I lose what two and a half of, or it's like a. A fifth of my vertical resolution, mm. same horizontal resolution, but the output file isn't a long panoramic-looking file. It is actually still 1920 by 1080. Yeah, exactly. It's just. Okay. It's, <laughs> so it's, I really want to test it now. Yeah, absolutely. Because you know, I'm sure they probably wouldn't. I mean, you know, there'll be some sort of compromise to get to that frame rate. But I'm sure you know, Sony being the clever bastards that they are, that uh, this is probably going to look pretty good. Um, 
it's the same LCD panel and the same sort of viewfinder arrangement and the ergonomics uh, as the FS100, the same resolution of, um, uh, of LCD. Um, the inclusion, there's a couple of inclusions which are, are really good. One of them is it has SDI out, which the FS100 didn't. That was only HDMI out. Now, my understanding is there's no difference to the, H, the SDI out uh, is still only going to be 8-bit. It's going to be whatever it goes down to, to the card. Um, it might have less compression, but it will it will still be 8-bit. So we're still trying to work out what, what will come out of the SDI output. And no doubt when they do the 4K uh, upgrade, that that's where 4K will come out of, you know, be able to, I'm presuming... Maybe there'll be. I think I don't. I think maybe that's still yet to be worked out. How you actually even record 4K? Because there's probably you know. I think there's a lot of, and we'll see that at NAB. That there's going to be a lot of uh, organ, a lot of, a lot of um, huddling going on. I guess about 4K about what is going to be the for the standard going forward you know what is how is there going to be some compression standards or is there going to be um some how you actually record this how you output it how you store it um is people going to actually get together and sort of work out how this stuff happens so maybe that's part of this time frame i'm not sure Um, yeah i'm sorry this is so desperately something that i want to test it's pretty interesting and i mean you've seen the fs100 it's a pretty impress most people who own it uh really like it it's got you know full xlrs on the body and it's very clever you know the ergonomics isn't suited to everybody but i quite like it it's one of those things where you can actually almost it's really nicely suited to waste like uh waste level shooting because you can sort of have the viewfinder pointing up at your eye and just cradle it in your hands on waist level and uh, you've got really nice simple access to the lens the other inclusion which the fs100 doesn't have is uh which the f3 does and we know we've used i used it a lot is uh nds uh built-in nds in in the in the um in the lens mount body I actually really like that. I yeah, know it's yeah, kind yeah. of considered yeah, a bit. It's kind of poo pooed as a bit of a it's you know oh, really it's a video easy. camera thing. But you yeah. know, once you've got it, you use that a lot. Oh yeah. Um, and all the other gaps in between where the stops are, you know, like I'm not sure what what the steps uh, ND steps will be with this camera, but um, you know, you can make up the rest with just slightly ISO, and just you know, changing the Sony ISO to get exposure, and not even worrying about a filter. They did on the F65. That's like a really high end camera. Mm. And if it's if it passes the F sixty five kind of threshold of yeah, I, I don't see any reason why we should be snobby about nope. in camera in line. Not at all. Indeed, not at all. So it's um, I'm just going to double check this uh, chart I had. Yep, yep. No, that's all correct. So I think it it's a really for for ten k it, it's uh, pretty good given the fact that you get. I actually have yet to find out whether that's uh, body only. I'm presuming body only because they're, they're going to be doing a bundle with uh, one of their zooms as well, I guess. And, you know, if you're going to use this for, for run and gun stuff and the lens obviously is designed to go with this camera. It's designed to work with autofocus, you know, a reasonable level of autofocus. Autofocus that's designed to work as a, you know, for, for motion rather than for stills. Um so I think it's I think it's it's pretty impressive for for only four grand more than what the FS one hundred goes out at. Yeah, it also do uh, has a stills mode. It'll do full eight point four megabyte uh, megapixel stills. So it's not just doing ten eighty stills like some of these cameras will do. So if you want to have a stills mode, you can yeah shoot eight point four megapixel stills. Um, yeah, 
so that is the Sony FS700. That's that's all we know so far. Again, ergonomically and physically, it looks pretty similar to the FS100. Maybe a slightly bulkier lens um, sort of mount area, but uh, essentially the body's the same. Well, okay, we're well, moving on from there. Um, yeah. Actually, you know, one other thing I want to ask you. Is this a camera that you want? Like, is this a camera that you could paraphrase? I mean, if you were recommending it to someone, who's the person that you would say, oh, you should... At first glance, obviously, we haven't tested it yet, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But, like, who's the guy that's going to walk up to you and say, hey, this would be a really well, good I camera? Well, I thought it would be good for you guys. You know, you guys do right. interviews all the time, and then you can also, you know, theoretically put, put existing lenses that you have on, your Canon glass or whatever. There's also, you know, plenty of other third-party adapters, dumb adapters, you know, even if you wanted to put PL glass on it. Um, and great for interviews that uh, you have, you know, grown-up level controls, physical mm-hmm. level controls and XLRs and uh, record to that. I mean, because you guys, when you had your, um, what did you have? What was that sort of P2 camera you had? It was a P2. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, but it was... Uh, Panasonic P2. X100 something, it's whatever. The, yeah, whatever it was. Thing, it's now drifted into history and probably yeah. made up a significant part of the conversation in uh, the Red Center podcast episode one. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> It's now drifted off into, off to the horizon. But um, you used to have that, like that Firestore thing on top of it. Yeah, you know, didn't even bother using the FP2 cards or no. tape or anything. Just use, just use that as a recorder. Um, and uh, you, so I think it would suit you guys for that kind of thing because you could have this dockable, you know, the flash memory unit. You could shoot just for hours and hours and hours with that thing and then just undock the thing and plug it straight into your cam- com- computer. And So I think, you know, it's great, great doco camera, I think. Um, definitely good for interviews considering it's, um, I mean, the FS100 terrific, but if you want to do that sort of more high-end doco where you want to actually start doing some really slow frame rates. I've got a, a mate of mine who does a lot of slow-mo food and he often has to do a bit of uh, animatic, Boring you know, a bit of sort of uh, stillomatic or make, yep. make it do a bit of a, a rough idea. Uh, first of all, just to get the idea of what rigs I want, just to do a bit of testing before you actually start renting the Phantom. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to start getting an idea of what rig works and is this spout working well? What frame rate am I aiming for? So I don't have to shoot it on five different frame rates. If you can have this thing here and shoot up to like 1,500 frames a second, that's sort of around about where they're shooting most of their food sort of speeds anyway and maybe a little bit faster but that's not you know you can certainly get the idea i think at the moment he's using some sort of little casio you know point and shoot thing which does some crazy frame rates but it'll do it at you know like postage stamp size things it's enough to give them the idea but this will be a great um uh you know test camera for uh someone doing you know who wants to do food testing before you start renting you know getting a uh, a vice cam in or something well, changing gears, can I do a couple yes. of plugs for a few things? Yes. Um, firstly, uh, we're going off to Vegas, you and I, Indeed. and joining the putting the band back together. Um, and one of the things we wanted to do was we wanted to go live from Vegas. Now, we um, hinted about this, I think, in uh, previous weeks, but we want to uh, cover Vegas. We've had problems in the past, not problems, I guess, but, you know, it's a little annoying. People are like, what's going on in Vegas? Or you record some stuff, you edit it, it gets out like days later. So we thought, why not go live? Then we investigated how hard it was to do that and decided, we'll still go live. Yeah, last year we did it a little bit. We sort of dabbled in the waters there a bit. But I thought we could do better. I thought last year's live um, 
had some issues, not least of which is that if you're going to tune into a live show, you really need to have it. Um, I mean, we, we did a couple of spot pieces, really, more than anything else. Yeah, really, and they yeah. were a bit sort of rambling. Let's face it, a bit chaotic. And it was a bit... I, I don't want it to be like it's an in-joke. Like if you're there, it's a live party and yeah. it's great. And you tune in and you're going, I'm not learning yeah. anything. And this is really... And you also, you're, you're standing up as a live audience, presenting something and holding up in gear and stuff like that. And, you know, if it's sort of just audio or whatever, it's a bit... Um, you know, as you say, it is a bit of an in-joke. You want to sort of make it good for everybody. Well, to do that, and there's one other thing we want to do. We want to be able to put um, FX Guide on the iPad so you can have a really good iPad experience and things like the show notes and everything else will um, go along with that. But also you'd be able to download stuff so you could have uh, stories that are viewed offline. So if you're on a flight or you're on set or something, you don't have internet, you can actually load up stories, load up um, clips and stuff and then be able to play them in an offline mode. Um, and so all of that uh, is stuff that we really, really wanted to do. So to be able to enable us to do that, we have a new, uh, I guess a bit like a pledge drive um, for supporters. So if you go to fxguide.com slash fx2012, you'll see there that um, we have a kind of Kickstarter-y type thing. Now, let me explain how it works. If you're not familiar with the Kickstarter kind of model, you go in and you just basically pledge to be a supporter and um, you would there are different pledge amounts. But if you pledge above pretty much anything you get something from us as a sort of a thank you so at five bucks we get we're going to do a behind the scenes video showing how all the tech works at nab and that'll be um and also particularly how we're doing the live stuff and how we're doing a lot of the a lot of the gear that we personally use but as it works its way up there are things like hats and uh, jackets and other stuff there's also um the ability to get and a full membership to fx phd so you would do a pledge and then as part of the thank you, we would give you like a hat and stuff, but we'd also give you access to FX PhD for the term. So I know some of you are thinking of joining for the April term. So we initiated this uh, the week before we announced the April term. That way somebody doesn't say, well, hang on, I just signed up on PhD. If I knew known that this was going to happen, I would have waited and signed up on FX Guide and got all the hat and all the other stuff as well as the term. So we're doing it around that way. Nothing stopping you going and joining PhD like normal. Um, but if you were... Once you hear about the courses wanting to do that this week, then you know it'd been annoying if uh, last week we'd done it around the other way. So all the new term at PhD, by the way, is up this week, and uh, and I'm going to just cover that in a second. But it includes a really good cinematography course that I'm doing uh, with Tom Gleason, which of course is somebody excellent, you know. Cool. Um, but if yeah, if you were somebody that listens to the podcast and you'd like to support it, we would like to keep this pretty much as we have in the past, very light on advertising. We have you know, maybe one sponsor a show. We don't do a lot of stuff in line. We don't stop halfway through the show and do a lot of um, stuff. So, But once a year, we kind of do ask for your support. Uh, last year, it was the Insider Program. This year, this is an extension of the Insider Program. So again, if you sign up at various levels of support for us, you will actually get access to Insider, which gives you uh, videos and stuff um, that you otherwise don't get. But really, it's just our way of saying thanks for supporting us. So... If you like the podcast and you'd like us to keep doing it and you want us to be able to do more, such as the live things, such as the iPad and stuff, please um, head on over to the site. We're already uh, going extremely well in terms of the money that people have pledged so far. So we really do want to thank you guys. Um, But I know some of you are waiting until this week when the new course was out. So so thanks so much for that. Now, that being said, let me, if you don't know what's in the new course, because it's only just come out, um, we have uh, a bunch of courses. I've got about 40 of which... 
a dozen are new in uh, FXPHD. And so the idea is you join for the term, as many of you would know, and that's a 12-week period and you get a class each week. You can fully download it. You can archive it. It's yours to keep. It's not like it's um, just a streaming thing. Uh, but you also have the ability to talk to someone. So in the case of the camera tech course, which is a course about getting things technically right with the cameras, in terms of like lighting and matching and um, being able to work shooting green screen so it will, will work into a live action plate and uh, log curves and everything to do with a bunch of cameras from the new 5D Mark III, uh, the F65, the Epic, of course, and, um, and a ton of cameras in between. That's one of the courses that you would get in FXPHD this term, but Tom Gleason and myself will be in the forums answering questions. So if you were like, well, I've got a shoot coming up tomorrow and you made this really interesting point about log curves and how I would deal with that on set, you know, you would post that in the forums and then Tom or I would be able to answer those questions and get back to you. Um, and in fact, you've been a professor in the past, Jason. Yes, with with, with Tom on, on when we did uh, Moving Day, the Tom shot. Which, by the way, just won some more awards. Congratulations. Did it? I think so, yes. Oh, cool. Yes. Yeah, excellent. Um, so, uh, yeah, so anyway, that's how it works. And we have a bunch of other really good courses uh, in broadcast design, uh, stuff to do with Houdini and Cinema 4D, obviously flame smoke stuff because that, we love that. This comes from our original background, but other things like um, Nuke Environments. Uh, and also there's a course that I run each term called Background Fundamentals, which you kind of get for free. Uh, and that covers, it's like a magazine show, and that covers things like HDRs and uh, camera tech and stuff and anything else that we think is super cool, interesting uh, coming out of um, the work that we do. One of those things we'll actually discuss in a minute um, to do with uh, uh, some stuff coming up. But look, all of this is uh, at fxphd.com, so I beg you to go and check that out. If you want to be part part of PhD, terrific. If you want to just um, maybe help FX Guide, and it's obviously a free thing, then please uh, head over to the FX Guide site. And uh, we really want to remain primarily user-supported content. So we have some advertising, but we can't keep it pretty limited. I think you'd agree on the website, on this podcast, everywhere else, we really don't have a lot of ads. Uh, so if you guys continue to support us, we'll be able to do this really cool stuff. And uh, and I don't think I don't think you guys, I mean, this is four years we've been going now, and I think you guys realize that, you know, some people start up podcasts and they go really well for like six months, and they just peter out. Being able to continue sort of week after week producing the content does take a lot of effort. And so, uh, yeah, had I known, <laughs> we'd love uh, your support. And it is no really expensive way. going to trade shows and doing all the stuff that we do. But um, we do it both because we want to, because we love it. We think it's a contribution to the community. But um, yeah, just the bandwidth from NAB alone, these guys should wear balaclavas. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Like, we're talking thousands of dollars for three days' worth of internet oh, access from the floor. It's insane. It is criminal. Though they're very Not nice much, people. Funnily they're enough. very nice people. We shouldn't, I hope they're not listening. Very nice people. Discharge a lot. <laughs> they're lovely, lovely people. The lovely union. Lovely, lovely people. The, no. Um, yes. Yeah, so, the earth. Terrific. Um, <laughs> I don't want to visit. Hurt me. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to visit a hole in the <laughs> desert. Um, but yeah, no. So that's what's going on there. Uh, so great. Hey, um, cool. Can I, while we're just on the FXPHD thing, yeah. can I just a quick plug to um, uh, not a term based thing, uh, but I'm presuming it's still going, is mm-hmm. the um, the fast forward, the resolve fundamentals. I guess that's first of something you're going to continue, I hope, because the resolve fundamentals that uh, Warren Eagles takes. This is, Mike, can you just explain uh, the, sure, the we idea have, of the fast forward thing? We normally have terms that run, um, you know, each term as I described. 
There are, however, courses that we occasionally run in fast-forward mode, and the reason for this is it's literally, as the name would imply, a way to get up and running really fast with a course. Um, and so uh, we set up a Resolve one um, a little while ago, and that is like the term courses, but you can just download them all in one go. The difference is um, Warren isn't available in the forums to answer questions the way our professor normally is, so we don't run most of our courses this way. But there are some other <clears throat> things coming up that are like this, where a new version of software comes out and we want you to be able to just download the whole course because you don't have to wait during the term to do it. So if it's a big thing that you need to get up to speed on right now, we offer the occasional course that way. And that's in this case. Um, now that's... I mentioned it because I've taken this one. Well, so I, say, this is all, no, I was going to say, but I just want to flag the fact this is a bit more expensive in terms of it's $200 for one course versus sort of around 350 for three courses plus a free one over yeah. in PhD, but that's just by the nature of how it runs. Well, this I, I mention it because I've 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 watched the course and it is. Just, I mean, I know Warren very well. He's graded a lot of my footage over over the years, and uh, I just thought, yeah, he's a good, great, great grader. But he is a fantastic professor. He's a really good professor. I've seen a lot of the Resolve training, and it's all fantastic. But he's just I don't know this. He's just got this way that he's just for me personally. Uh, I've got resolved, and I'm sure there's a lot of you guys out there who probably even have the the free version. You know, hey, take the money you save, not buying the full version of Resolve, and and I reckon this is definitely. Um, I'm not trying to sound like a freaking ad, but well, you know, um, it's our workflow here. Our this workflow is here. a really good. He's a really good uh, overview and, and quite in depth uh, for Resolve. We, we we cut our classes. Um, we put out you know about forty hours of HD a week in the combined companies. And mm. so our workflow here is we edit uh, on Final Cut and then we export an XML that goes into Resolve, that gets graded, and then it goes back into Final Cut for final supers and overlays uh, and, of course, the audio to be uh, done, done for the mix sound, ready for the compression passes. And a lot of people have asked us about that workflow, which is obviously one of the things we're going to be covering in the behind-the-scenes video for uh, that I was talking about from NAB because a lot of people wonder how we get such good compression rates and you know, yeah. how we do stuff like that. Yeah. But... Uh, yeah, no, Resolve is just part of our workflow. We, we you know, thrash that sucker. I didn't mean to hijack that. I've just been meaning to me- I've been watching it, so I've been meaning to mention it a lot because I just, uh, yeah, I just was really impressed with not just the colorist but how good he is as a as uh, a teacher. Hey, um, just a rat hole. Jeff has the 5D Mark III, and he has been torturing me by sending these really amazing tests. Torturing us, Yes, well, okay, yeah. I was not wanting to include you in the torture camp, but... Yeah, I'm, I'm there. My 5D is currently with uh, my good friend, John Montgomery. He's just come back from shooting in um, New York with it. No, no, New oh, York okay. with it. Yeah, he just got back this uh, last weekend. So that's great. I love that he has it. I hope that it survived the New York trip all right. But it's just funny because I, I was going to go for NAB. I thought I won't ship the 5D here. Yeah. Did you end up... Buying a 5D from the States or one here locally? Yeah, yeah. from there. I think it's also... So you're going to pick it up in an AB? Yeah. Right. So we're going to have... So Jeff's got one. John's got... There's going to be four 5D Mark III's. You're taking your Epic? Yep. So are we going to have at least three or four Epics, three or four 5D Mark III's? Yep. Right. It's <laughs> a little bit of overkill. Do you think we'll get some footage? <laughs> um, yeah. Guarantee it. Okay. 
But uh, yeah, no, it's been interesting. Jeff's been sending a bit of footage, test footage over. He's been doing quite in some intense, intense, uh, in depth, in depth testing. Actually, real Jeff's world a, testing. Jeff's a re- I mean, obviously, Jeff's a really good guy, but Jeff's a really good uh, guy for this kind of stuff because he's quite calm. I mean, I get quite enthusiastic about something, get carried away, but he's actually, you know, like I'm just going to go down and check out, um, you know, how to do this, and he's quite methodical about it. And yeah, yeah, he he was upgrading from a seven D. Which I think is nothing wrong with the 7D. It's a great camera. But yeah. he kind of it was like, okay, now I get the 24 to 70. Like, that's a better range yeah. on yeah. the 5D than he was experiencing with it. Right. Yeah, it's... Um, with the 50, right? And it should be a comfortable move, given a lot of the ergonomically, it's sort of similar. All well, the switch, switch gear and the layout is uh, similar. So, yeah. Cool. Um, anyway, we should uh, jump over to gear now. So yeah, once just on that, once we do actually get the five D Mark III, you mm. might actually cut through some of the shit about how soft, sharp, whatever this thing is. I mean, I think it's a bit sort of faster and a bit more sensitive, but you know, you're still going to have the same sort of artifacts and stuff. But uh, the whole sharpness thing is something I'm keen to get to the bottom of. Uh, is this uh, is it all bullshit, or is this actually are we really dealing with a slightly less less uh, sharp way of creating images with this new camera? I honestly thought it was going to go the other way. So if it actually ends up with something dull, duller, or less 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 sharp, I'll be annoyed. So anyway, we definitely want to get to the real world uh, answer for that question. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. No. No. Um, yeah. So I was saying, let's shift gears to gear. Okay. And now, the RC Gear Guide. Well, I guess we started off a bit of gear with the launch of the Sony. A um, couple of bits of epic bits and pieces. So um, an interesting thing, uh, which I've sort of thought would be a good piece of gear anyway, because funnily, I kind of made a sort of a ad hoc version of this a while back. This is the uh, Carbonite Scope from Cinema Oxide. Cinema Oxide is a... Uh, uh, one of the newer batch of manufacturers making stuff for Epic and making top and bottom plates and cages and stuff. But they've sort, they've taken my sort of roughhouse kind of, well, I didn't take my design, but I, I kind of took the the hood off the small HD DP4 and stuck it on the front with a rubber band, stuck it on the front of the um, uh, the 5-inch touch LCD, the red 5-inch red mm-hmm. LCD, and it fitted beautifully. And I thought, oh, this is not bad. You just need a way to be able to, because it's a touchscreen, and you, if you plug in the LCD, you can't have the bomb, you can't have any EVF, so you need a way to be able to uh, control the camera. So what they've done is made a really nice flip-up carbon fibre. It sort of mounts or clamps around the the Epic and Scarlet's LCD and just makes it a nice sort of flip-up mechanism. So you can flip it out of the way, use it as an LCD or, you know, control, change some settings on the camera, then flip it back down and use it as an EVF. For people who don't want to fork out the, what, 3000 over $3,000 for a, a bomb, it's a beautiful EVF. I really like it. I've got one of the good ones, and it works really well, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't you know, go eBaying it any time soon. But for, you know, for the... Other pe- people, or this, I want to say Scarlet Crowd, but people who don't want to necessarily spend quite so much, um, do want to have that EVF or have that high, uh, that um, high brightness ability to be able to uh, look at. Look, you have an LCD. It's slightly less resolution. The LCD is slightly less resolution than 
the bomb EVF, so it might be slightly less easy to pick sharps. But uh, hey, for five hundred ninety-five bucks, uh, it's an excellent alternative. So yeah, a bolts around the monitor and a, fl- a nice flip-up loop. Uh, it's quite light and it's got German glass and very, it looks like a reasonably sensible eye cup. Five ninety-five. Uh, I'm trying to think. Is it Cinema Ox- Cinema Oxide? Dot com, and they've got a few other bits and pieces there uh, in their store. So links in the show notes as well. Uh, okay, next bit of gear. There's another another manufacturer of uh, Epic Gear, Fortis Cinema, who have been around a little while, but F O R T I S Cinema dot com, making some really nice, uh, essentially a top and bottom top and bottom plate at this stage, and a, a really nice XLR. Uh, solution if you don't necessarily want to have the big bulkiness of that uh, wooden camera xlr plug-in thing why can't you just plug things in directly why you, you can just plug things in directly sound guys like xlr stuff i've had all those cables and they just go oh can't i have an xlr so what do you do, hmm? what do, you do? Uh, just tell them to get all that crap off my camera and just I'll point if I if I feel like it I'll point over and get a bit of time code and just don't bother it's very the audio into the epic is still a pain in the ass it really is it's still very annoying but this makes it a little bit easier it's a little less bulky alternative and it's really quite quite affordable especially this bottom plate that you can put an XLR on either side of it and uh, it kind of captures the cables and makes them a little bit less likely to pop out while we're still waiting for the Pro IO module to be able to actually have proper XLRs and uh, and uh, not and, and phantom power and all that stuff. Uh, so they do a bottom plate with two XLRs for about 380 bucks. This is some pretty cheap stuff. A top, top plate or a bottom plate alone is about $265. You get the whole lot for about 650 uh, bucks. Very good. Uh, FortisCinema.com. It's got this nice sort of like gunmetal kind of look. It's quite nice. So, uh, now the next bit of gear on the list uh, is something that you've had hands-on, Mike, and I wasn't aware that because I've 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 seen this in the hand and spoken to its creator, and as have you. The uh, talk about the DeepX. Yeah, the DeepX is an underwater housing. No, it's not three D uh, epic porn. Three <laughs> D epic porn. Okay, um, I don't know where that's coming from. Um, actually, there will be a three D version of this, but this is a mono be. version. At the moment. Indeed, it's it's the highest selling. No, no, I'm talking about 3D <laughs> housing. No, I'm talking about 3D epic porn. I think it's the biggest selling um, film at the moment in China. Anyway. Okay, I don't even know what you're doing. No, it's all right. Um, I'll show you later. No, actually, quite frankly, you won't. As a father of two girls, I find that really offensive. Um, okay, listen, this thing is a housing front. You're bloody teasing anyway. Um, this is a housing for uh, Epics that is really original. Now, we were involved a little bit in helping out with the design of this because um, our pal, who is the designer, didn't have an Epic in the early days. He obviously does now. Um, and the, what makes this so special, what makes this so incredible for an Epic, is imagine that you had your Epic in a normal housing. At the front of it, you've got a lens. In front of that is air before you get to something that keeps the water out. That's going to be normally a dome. That dome needs to be very accurate because there's refraction going on as light comes through the dome. And mm, clearly, it's essentially a lens. Part of you becomes part of your lens. Yeah, it? though it's, well, of course, not meant to magnify. If it's um, a mono camera, that's a dome so that you try and get the line of refraction being virtually um, 
you know, it goes straight through and doesn't uh, curve. But invariably, there is some loss of resolution because you're going through this uh, housing. And because it's domed, it's very hard to make a very, very accurate dome because, as you say, it's like a lens. Um, if you don't dome it, you make it like a flat piece of glass. Well, then you can imagine if you draw a line from the lens to the side corners of the frame, um, as the moves through the water, it hits the different refractive index of the glass. It bends and it bends again when it goes to the air, then it bends again when it hits your glass and goes through, which is why you don't tend to get particularly uh, good precision. This is also a major problem for stereo because stereo can't have domes because you've got two lenses, so they have to go with the flat glass. Where this is awesome is it uses actually some older technology in the sense an approach that Nikon uh, uh, pioneered to put the lens in the water. So the Epic is dry and it's in the housing. The mount is the front of the uh, actual housing and your lens goes into that mount, which is going into your Epic. So it's essentially the first time that uh, the Nikonos lens system, which is what this is, it uses mm-hmm. the existing Nikonos lenses, which are sealed, waterproof uh, lenses designed to be uh, used for stills. Uh, as the first time it's been used for motion picture. Yeah. Um, so we... We held out great promise for this, and we, that's why we're really, really happy to help um, with it in the early design stages. And um, Powell's doing some really amazing stuff, by the way, Jason. The stereo rig, for example, to get the two rigs together, yeah. he's worked out how to break the um, SSD unit off the side of your Epic and have it underneath the Epic on a tethered line so you can get the two units close together. Yeah, it's really interesting to work out. I mean, you'd think, well, hang on, I need to have a mirror rig and have uh, much closer interocular. But uh, the argument for underwater is that uh, you c- it's completely okay to have this quite close uh, sort of lens side-by-side interocular system for the 3D rig, right, Mike? Well, yeah, because A, you gain so much by not having a mirror. Uh, and then the other great advantage of it is that because you take the uh, side mount off the Epic, you can actually get the two Epics relatively close to each other. Yeah. Um, but look, we're going to do a whole lot of, of stuff on this. I'm just saying it now because Pal's already... Uh, posted some stuff on Red User about it. Uh, but we went down there. Um, poor guy just broken his leg. <laughs> so we, I, I was flying down with a crew. We then cancelled the entire trip. Then we found somebody else um, who could take his place for the dive because uh, it's a deep dive. It's not, you know, sort of Jim Cameron deep yeah. to the bottom of the world, but it's deep in terms of it, you needed to be um, a good diver. Plus, with the rig and with currents, we were near the rocks. Uh, you really wanted to know what you're doing. And so you needed someone that was like an instructor level. Yeah. Um, but that's what we did. And so we went down to, to, a, uh, to a dive site, um, flew down actually to Tasmania, and we shot down there with this rig. So we're going to post that in an upcoming um, uh, thing on FX Guide. We're also going to be doing it in FX PhD this term. And this footage is unbelievable this is really like this is the equivalent of hubble telescope versus ground-based i mean you are, you are getting right this you is are taking a resolution the bottle glasses off yeah this is it's like you're getting a resolution at the edges which is about standard def yeah on a rig inside even with imax as far as pal says that it's just the imax cool. underwater once you put a, a dome over the top of those lenses the chromatic aberration and all the artifacts that come from that essentially knock the um, resolution down to almost, even on an IMAX frame, down to you know something approaching standard def, whereas, which is insane. Whereas in this, we were shooting incredibly um, sharp images out to the corner that would be matching like a Master Prime. Yeah, so this will be essentially the first time anybody 
has ever been able to capture images that are like 5K, in, in moving images that are anywhere near something like 5K underwater. This has been the sharpest moving picture images. And, uh, and they and, are. And, and congrats to him to actually th- working the problem rather than just going along with the accepted, uh, the current rigs, which are just comp- even even the latest uh, competitor rigs for, for Epic for, fi- for 5K used, still use the standard yep. you know, dome port. And, you know, we flew down with the last component that just literally had been manufactured, you know, a day before. Um, and uh, we flew into the country with it. So it's awesome. Um, but the, the lens is really interesting also, Jace, because you actually have the control to reach around the front of the housing yeah. and adjust the f-stop and the focus because they're just manual controls on the lens. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I've got to say, it's the right footage there. is just off the dial good. Which and makes it easy to couple them mechanically. If you've got a 3D rig, both lenses can be easily, simply coupled just with, with, with matching gears. So it becomes far less complicated. Yeah, you just reach around, adjust <laughs> adjust things. And yeah, he's really worked this problem and it's really clever. And if you look at, there's a shot, I don't know, I might say that, Mike, there's a shot you did of side-by-side of the old, re- you know, the existing kind of technology versus this new thing. Not that you worry too much about size or weight underwater because it become, everything become you make everything neutrally buoyant to some, some degree. That's actually true. But the massive size difference for this rig is just... But don't forget, we've also got a massive, uh, what's not in that shot is the light rig. Because one of the things we needed to do was pump a lot of light down there to get some reasonable f-stop. And even that's a whole interesting story in of itself, which we're going to go into, to do getting the color temperature right because of the uh, filtration. Mm. But, you know, we're at depths where you can't see the surface. And it's not, as I say, you know, deep sea Cameron kind Mm. of stuff. But it's it's down far enough that... um, the world just lights up. I mean, it is unbelievably vivid, this footage. It's extraordinary. Anyway, so that's all coming up. So I just wanted to um, to flag that as uh, – I don't want to do the whole ep on it, but um, it's uh, it's awesome. We've done a lot of in-depth stuff on it, as you can imagine. Uh, one of our crew got extremely seasick. It wasn't me. Um, but, yes, it's just a heap of fun down there. And I want to thank everyone that gave us a hand. Um, hey. While we're on that subject, can we just, uh, I mean, I know he doesn't listen to the show, but just a huge shout out to Mr. Cameron himself, who's literally just gone to the deepest Respect. part of the ocean. How do you know he doesn't listen? What do you, what do you think he was doing at the bottom of the ocean? Just like listening to the RC podcast. <laughs> Something fun. Doing a documentary and, you know, he's taken epics down there. So I seriously, to, that's my understanding. Down to the Mariana Trench, uh, as everyone well knows by now, that uh, yeah, he's gone to the deepest part of the ocean and taken uh, epics down there as part of uh, Nat Geo uh, Doco, I guess, and no doubt huge reference. I'm sure they'll somewhere some way they'll work as he did with Titanic, working in some of the footage. Perhaps some of this will make its way into um, Avatar two and three. Who knows? I've got to say, uh, yeah. I mean, obviously two Navy divers did it uh, a few years ago. So this is the deepest solo dive. But when they went down, they kicked up so much silt and stuff that, wow, they had the bragging rights of doing it, which, by the way, you know, awesome. Um, They didn't get particularly good footage for anybody else to see. Uh, Now, that being said, the sheer accomplishment of making it and back but I do think it's a bit equivalent to the lunar landing in the sense that, you know, the first lunar photos were just so horrendously bad <laughs> yeah. and you could just sort of make out the guys getting off the lunar. And then by the time they went to, you know, later Apollo missions, they had color cameras and you could really see what was going on. And, well, I, I think this is going to be the same way. This is going to be actually letting us see this stuff. But um, it is, you know, and also the guy, sh- the guy a shout is, out to the Australian designer 
of the submersibles to I think it's Ron Allen who designed these things. Very breakthrough design, crazy crazy way of thinking. But you just you design again. Don't follow what's been done before. Uh, so yeah, shout out to uh, Australian uh, designer who uh, um, helped him get there. Sorry, what were you saying? I was going to say like Cameron is just you know isn't he just the most kind of I mean. Can you admire a guy more? Like he's uh, no, a complete man crush on the whole thing. Someone who shoots his own work, <sighs> writes his own work, directs it, um, and you know, an adventurer. It's a Renaissance man. He he is just the. He's like such a man's man. That guy. God. He's a man's man. Just totally respect. Anyway, um, hey, uh, you've got a gear unusual thing. It's it's a I guess a gear wanna recommend oh this uh the uh, that bag thing yeah yeah well this is just a quick shout out please fund this it looks like they're going to get their money anyway this is a kickstarter thing it's a bit of a whole kickstarter kind of a yep. show um trek pack is doing there's a couple of girls who are designing these uh a new way of doing the if anyone has obviously ever used the velcro dividers on a pelican or a low low pro bag knows that you know it's a real bittersweet thing you can kind of get it right but it also kind of really sucks this is a really clever way of doing it it's um giving you a lot more control of how you divide up a bag it's really just this sort of honeycomb kind of strips with these interesting like metal u-pins where you can kind of rearrange it it's a bit hard to imagine but uh, again links in the show notes or if you go googling track pack uh t-r-a-k-p-a-k it's on kickstart at the moment links in the show notes it'd be awesome if it uh, or get off the ground they'll do um, they have kits uh, or you can donate a specific amount based on what existing pelican case you have to have the you know to get get the inner kit to um, uh, throw away the velcro kit you may have for your pelican or that freaking pick and pluck goddamn pick and puck, pluck foam um <laughs> And uh, yeah, buy either the case with the bits and pieces, or or, or the just the trek pack inner itself for your specific um, pelican case. So yeah, I I think it's going to get up and, and get its uh, get its money anyway. How uh, much did you donate? But yeah, if you go to Kickstarter dot com, how much did you donate? Uh, I think like the hundred dollar one or something, which is like uh, you can have a. Uh, pelican insert no maybe not even that but i should i'm actually only then after i did it, i noticed down that if you scroll down the bottom of the page there's a whole bunch of you can the, the exact pledge amounts for the exact like if you've got a pelican 1510 um and you you know exactly whether you're international or usa how much exactly the pledge if you want to um you know get yourself uh what you want as well as obviously support them i reckon forget this whole Forget the whole Kickstarter thing. Carter or Lopro or Pelican has got to just give these girls a million bucks and take their idea and 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 um, not that they would, probably wouldn't make a million bucks by themselves, but somebody, <laughs> some major case manufacturer should take this idea and say, great, this is much better than Velcro. Run with it. Okay. Anyway, minor, uh, a small little, little side note. Not exactly gear, but hey, I saw it yesterday. I thought, ah, dudes, awesome. Well, now, we talked a little earlier about shooting high speed, and we were certainly talking about the Sony camera, which does shoot high speed. Um, yeah. In a second, we're going to cross to the Red Room with an interview I did 
with Jim Gagildik. Now, you know Jim. Yeah. Yeah, we've been talking um, on, on the side about this project for a little bit, and I'm so uh, I'm so keen to see the footage. This is – have you know about this, this Camp Woodward thing? It's a bloody awesome place. I'm not a, I'm not a skateboarder, but uh, the cool thing about this is that um, Jim actually is a boarder from way back. Um, and actually went to camps at this place. This uh, Camp Woodward, it's if you just even just Google the place alone, they've based whole video games on this place, right? Like they've scanned the entire layout of the thing. It is a, if you're a skateboarding kid in the states, why would you would not just want to go and live at this place? It is an insane Red Bull. Mm-hmm. There'd be just be like Red Bull in every machine, right? But yeah, just, be... it is a massive, amazing, amazing, just a skateboarding heaven. Uh, and he took the new mirror, which has been is not a, an unannounced camera. It's sort of been on 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 Phantom's site, but you haven't been able to buy it and haven't been able to do anything. You haven't been able to sort of get your hands on one yet. But the new mirror is um, a really small, compact camera, and um, I guess uh, Jim will give us a heads up on it. But uh, very very jealous. He got to go and shoot. It's just perfect for this kind of thing. A really small, compact Phantom, hand holdable Phantom. That uh, yeah, that you can, um, and then go chasing skateboarders up ramps with it. Awesome. You are entering the red room. So Jim, thanks for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mike. So you've been playing with some new tech. What have you been up to? Uh, well, basically, I've been playing with the new Phantom Miro series cameras, uh, specifically the the M120. Um, they're kind of a, a shift. Uh, from the Flex and, and the Golden 65, where it's it's a much smaller form factor. Um, the cost has come down, too, uh, as far as the, the camera, but it packs a, a pretty big punch for, for such a small form factor camera, uh, allowing, you know, doing up to 800 frames per second at 1920 by 1080. So is this one of those cameras that's specifically designed for the film industry? Because obviously Vision Research does a lot of stuff that's uh, across the board. This Does this feel like a filmmaker's camera? It, it definitely does. Um, more so than, I guess you would say, where, where the origins of, of Vision Research have come. It, it does have a feel of a, of a smaller handheld camera. And I don't want to put it up against a... A, uh, a handy cam, but it, it has that, you know, it can fit in the palm of your hand um, as, as a bare system with just a, with just a lens mount. And, you know, it, it's, it's very mobile, but if you think about filmmaking with everything that's stereoscopic and, and just being able to go run and gun off of a tripod, uh, the, the form factor and the, the kind of ergonomics of this camera is definitely geared towards the filmmaker. So what were you kind of filming with it? Um, I actually approached uh, my friends at Vision Research and Able Cine about a project uh, that I've had in my head for for about two years that was around kind of my passions and how I got started in, in filmmaking and post-production and visual effects, which was, you know, skateboarding and snowboarding and, uh, and just action sports in general. So um, I, I brought the idea and the project to... Uh, Mo Short at Able Cine, and he brought it to uh, uh, the attention of the team there uh, with Pete Abel and, and Jesse. And they basically said, we, we love your idea for your project. Um, we, you know, we'd like to get the camera in your hand. And it being, you know, these cameras aren't out yet. Um, it being kind of known, you're going to jump on a beta system. 
it was a bit of a camera test as well as being able to try and shoot uh, this project that I had in my head, um, which was basically uh, the kind of trials and tribulations that any athlete would go through as far as the whole mental thing of either getting hurt, coming back from uh, getting hurt, you know, how you prepare for trying uh, different tricks or trying things that have never been done before. So it was kind of like that. The the Phantom came into play uh, because of that whole, um, you know, hard hard kind of the hard problems that you go through if you get hurt or uh, that kind of mental block that gets in the way sometimes when you're trying to do a trick, you know, over and over and over and over again. And sometimes you have to leave it alone for a while and come back to it. The That whole kind of slowing down time and, and time remapping and messing around with um, visual effects, uh, as far as time base goes, it, that's where my whole idea of this phantom came into play in the first place. Now, of course, you were working on Art of Flight, which is a film that many of us know and, and loved, and that had use of the Phantom. Were you involved in the Phantom stuff on Art of Flight? No, I was more. On, I was on the post side uh, on that. Unfortunately, it came on a little bit later. And um, yeah, Kurt and Jared and Greg and the guys at Brain Farm, um, you know, have have their own Phantom Flex. Uh, they have uh, had had uh, an HD Gold system too. So. Yeah, in, in flight, there's there's a, a lot of use uh, and, and a lot of good use of, of using the Phantoms um, to kind of show not only the the amazing um, scenery, but also a lot of the amazing snowboarding that went down in, in flight. So what were you recording on on this test? Like what was just going to be the workflow of like how uh, the images are being actually stored? Because obviously at that high frame rate, they've got to go somewhere and they've got to go somewhere pretty fast. Yeah, the... The easy way to do it that I came up with uh, uh, Jesse at Able was to basically use the onboard recording. Um, it, it traditionally it does similar; it records to RAM like like other Phantoms, um, but it doesn't record uh, and dump off to a Cinemag. It it uses a Cine Flash, which is just a uh, a removable SSD cartridge on on the side of the of the mirror. So what what speeds were you running at? Like uh, the footage that you were shooting on this test, not on uh, shooting anywhere from 120 all the way up to 800 frames per second. So talk to me about that from a creative point of view, from a filmmaker's point of view, because I think you know people look at sort of high speed photography and just a bigger number seems better. But I think that there are kind of natural numbers that feel better for certain types of things. And in fact, just getting something at a thousand frames a second may not be a good idea because, quite frankly, in a cut it might be kind of dull. Because uh, obviously things are running really slow. Did you have any kind of uh, speeds that you liked or you feel like work for the material that you're shooting? Uh, yeah, I, I do totally agree with that where if you kind of overdo uh, shooting higher frames, you, you, don't get, you, know, you don't get as much out of it. So you know, I found myself starting off shooting 96 frames, 120 frames, 360, you know, 450 um, all the way up to 800 and then kind of looking at reviewing those and looking at them and finding that kind of aesthetic feeling uh, where I wound up sticking more to the, um, you know, between 200 and, you know, 600 frames uh, shooting at that. It, it kind of gave me a better sense of what what I wanted to do in, in post. Uh, and as far as, 
um, time remapping went. Uh, I started playing around with the ideas in my head beforehand, uh, having worked with the flex and the gold before, that I knew I wasn't going to be shooting every single thing at 800, uh, 800 frames per second. Uh, also because I knew what my constraints were as far as recording medium and, and not having like a dedicated Phantom Tech uh, with, you know, with a Mac Tower and everything there um, that way. So um, I kind of stuck between that uh, 200 to 600 frames per second, uh, and it worked out really well. Now, someone may say, why not just shoot everything 800 and, and then speed it up in post, even in, in Final Cut? But, of course, it affects shutter, doesn't it? Yes, it definitely does. Um, the the good thing about this camera, too, which is, is it has the capping shutter just like the Flex, so being able to kind of run and gun, so to speak, uh, with this camera, um, because it was a beta camera at, at the time that I tested it, there were a couple things that I... Um, that I had to be wary of, uh, especially with that, but being able to have, uh, being able to, to black balance right then and there and white balance right away. Um, and if you've ever shot high speed before, you know, sometimes on, on some other high speed cameras, um, you know, having to black balance and white balance is, before each shot and every time you change the frame rate is, is a big deal. And you have to compensate for every shot that you're doing or planning throughout that day. So, um, this kind of, uh, camera allows you to be a little bit quicker uh, with your high speed work and, and doing number of setups uh, in in a given hour. What what lenses did you have on? Uh, for this shoot, I got lucky and I got the new Canon uh, 14.5 to 60 uh, T26 zoom. Their new uh, Cine. It was the PL mount, not the EF mount or EOS mount. Um, had a set of uh, ultra primes from 14 to 85 and also had a nice Leica 135 macro mm -hmm. um, as well as a bunch of cannons because the, the mirror 120 can have uh, a few different lens mounts on there, Nikon, Canon, uh, PL. So for this, I went PL and uh, Canon mount. So talk to me about that new uh, Canon lens that you started with, the, the Cine one, the PL mount. What's that like to use? Uh, I was really impressed. Uh, I've been using a lot of a lot of Zeiss glass lately, and I would say that that new Canon is is it's tack sharp. The fall off uh, is is definitely minimal as you're as you're getting out from the center of the lens, um, and it really held up against some of the other zooms that I've used used in the past. So it's uh, pretty surprising, you know, for for Canon's first step into that whole cine lens market, it's it's uh, it holds its own weight. So, talk to me also about the uh, fact that on the mirrors you have this uh, auto trigger stuff, uh, so that you can obviously time better the shot that you're getting. Did you use that? I used I used it a few times, but for what I was doing, um, I I like to activate the the trigger. As far as using the image-based uh, auto trigger, yep. it it was a really cool. It's really cool as as far as it works. Can you just explain it for people that don't know it? Because I think it's an interesting uh, an idea. Um, basically, what what happens is uh, it, it's kind of like almost motion detection, in, in that when something comes into frame that you can set up and how how I had to use it or how you have to use it at first is um, using using the PCC the the Phantom Control software. Um, setting up what in essence would be 
what's coming in frame, what's going to trigger the camera um, to, to capture. Um, the normal way is, you know, you're using an RCU or a PCU, some kind of uh, Limo cabled remote uh, or top handle, and you're triggering it that way. But in this way, you would think of it as almost motion detection. As someone, you set something that comes into frame, it triggers the camera to then do its recording interval however you have it set up. And and uh, just in sort of technical terms on the camera, when you're filming with stuff like that, what are you rating the camera at? Like, what's it... Uh... What, what ISO are you sort of assuming? The camera's rated about a thousand uh, with with color. I, th- I believe it's uh, a little bit different if you're doing because it has the monochrome setting yep. too. Um, but I think the monochrome of, setting goes to like four thousand. Yeah, yeah, it's it's something crazy, and that, that's where you get into the real uh, technical scientific aspects that these cameras also have. So, um, but it, it's it's about a thousand, and you know, having it there. Uh, you know, as as another having the epic and, and the scarlet there, um, it was a little. At first, it was a little getting used to of how we were going to treat the lighting for for the Miro. You know, it has uh, a similar setup to the Flex, but I did run into issues with the lighting uh, at the location we were shooting at uh, Camp Woodward in Pennsylvania, which is uh, an action sports camp. And they use a lot of uh, kind of stadium lighting for the indoor and the outdoor. Uh, uh, you know, facilities. So if anybody's shot high speed, you know that stadium lighting is like your, your ultimate enemy. There's so much, so much flicker that you have to flicker central. Yeah. And you know, I don't, I didn't have any crazy HMIs with me. This was kind of like a, a little bit low key personal project uh, as far as the budget goes. But you know, I, I, no way did I have the lighting power to over, uh, to overcompensate for all that steam lighting. So the, some of the trick was um, shooting at night. Uh, I shot, had all the lights shut off um, on the, uh, this one particular outdoor um, plaza scene, and uh, we lit it with a lot of LED lights, which you know I hadn't done too much high speed with just LED lights, but... Um, I had a bunch of uh, light panels, one by ones, and a bunch of the uh, newer Switronics little torch bolts, which are also uh, LEDs. And it actually, the, all that mixed together held up pretty well because um, we were only lighting certain obstacles at one time. So basically, the you know the skater would come into frame, hit hit the light. And then exit frame where he kind of just falls off. The lighting just falls away. Um, and it actually held up pretty well uh, shooting LEDs, all LEDs for the night scene with with high speed. And it definitely, it was a little bit of a different look. You know, we had to come up with some interesting ways to use the LED lights to bounce uh, and get certain accents like off of the, uh, the cement floor was a little bit uh, of a sheen with some of the LED lights. So we had to kind of bounce them uh, in certain ways. So the, uh, so the camera would kind of pick up the detail we wanted to. And we shot, a, you know, a little bit higher at nighttime for some of the, uh, some of the action that I wanted to get. So it was kind of in between um, 240 to 640 frames per second at night. So now you're filming, as you said, to the, to the Cine flash. Um, mm. That's a 12 bit camera going to what a 10-bit log raw file is that yes. what you, yeah and 
one of the advantages it seems to me of this camera is that it's kind of rugged and small. Uh, so it's can be operated sort of non-tethered, which means this has what onboard battery support. I mean, how do you power it? Uh, you can power it with uh, the same Sony batteries that you would use to power uh, like an EX1. Okay. So uh, like a like a BP60, BP90. You know, the I had about ten of those of those Sony batteries that you can just pop right into the back. Um, and I also switched between doing handheld with the with the Sony batteries and then also going out uh, XLR to to um, to power off a of V mount when I wanted longer. No, that's interesting. You had ten of them because I thought they lasted for like about forty five minutes or an hour. But were you not getting along, or you just needed tons of batteries? I just need to. Well, I had two cameras with me. Okay. So so right. I split five. You know, I split them between the two cameras. Um, the mount, you know, how we were discussing before that it's obviously interchangeable between uh, PL and Canon and stuff. Is that something you can do or do you have to kind of get it fitted one way or the other when you got the the camera? Is it like, you know, how the Epic you can actually in the field? Yeah, much, serviceable. Much, yeah. Um, uh, I would I would say it's, it's a different setup from working with, and, and switching out the mount between the PL uh, and the Canon for, for, say, an Epic. Right. Um, only because... Uh, this camera is definitely a little bit more sensitive, so I I set up each mount uh, at Able ahead of time before before I left for location, and I did one PL and one and one for the uh, EOS mount. Right. Um, right. You can change them uh, on location, but you would probably want to have something that's a little bit more of a uh, uh, a cleaner area to set it up, especially with with the uh, with these optics. So if you've seen any photos of this camera, it looks, you know, robust and great and really terrifically rugged. It doesn't, however, seem to have an obvious way to control any menus. <laughs> How do you actually set the camera? Yeah, it's it's um, different right now. Yeah, you have to use, um, uh, like, the Phantom Control Unit or Able has an RCU as well. Um, different from, like, the, the very accessible uh, spinning knob that you have on, like, the Flex. Mm. Um, so I was I was... If you could call it, I was tethered to the remote, the RCU, uh, and using it that way. There are going going to be, um, you know, different options with that with that uh, Vision Research remote and also the uh, the Able remote. Um, but as far as getting an actual knob that you can spin through that, I don't know if that is definitely planned for, you know, maybe an updated version of this camera. But right now, you you have to use the remote to get through everything. So I guess that brings us to the most important question, which is, you know, what did you think of the footage? I mean, how did it look? I I thought the footage came out really, really good. I was actually surprised. Um, you know, the true test of high speed for me was definitely the night shots mm. uh, with it with this camera. Um, you know, having shot kind of later in the day and night and and extreme bright sun with with the flex before. Um, it was it was really cool to see that the footage you kind of you know you kind of had to expose um, a little bit differently than you would on on a flex because the flex is definitely going to be a little bit uh, you know a little bit more sensitive than than this camera, um, but you know bringing the footage in, uh, looking at it in in the Phantom software and then bringing it into um, uh, Speed Grade and Resolve and looking at it. Um, I was pretty. I was pretty impressed with everything that turned out from this camera. Because we you know we talk about a thousand ISO, and that sounds like a heck of a good number. 
but once you go up to high speed, you just lose so much light because everything's just so short in exposure times. Yes, definitely. Um, it, it it's definitely a new uh, kind of camera that fits into I, I think a lot of uh, different type of filmmaking. Obviously, with a lot of the action based stuff that I've been doing, you know, in the past couple of years, it it I definitely think that it has a big place. You know, not only in the in the 2D action stuff, but for for stereoscopic stuff, I'm pretty psyched to pop this baby, in, you know, in a uh, in a rig and, and test out how this thing can do because it's you know it's super lightweight. When you hold a mirror in your hand with just the remote and a lens, and, and you know you have the little battery on the back uh, and a top handle, you know that that's pretty run and gun, and you know you haven't really been able to do. Um, higher frame rates, you know, at, at full nineteen twenty by ten eighty, uh, with with a camera this small yet. So let me ask you that. Just comparing it, <clears throat> an obvious uh, other small camera is the Epic. Let me just ask you: Do you find that you miss not being able to do four K or five K? Do you really find that you were always going at nineteen twenty by ten eighty anyway? You know, I mean, you can actually go higher than this. You can go up to nineteen twenty by twelve hundred. I think, yeah, yeah. But you obviously can't go to four or five k. Do you miss that? Uh, I do. Different... In, I do in some senses. Um, I definitely had. You know, I was shooting um, the Epic and Scarlet as well, and doing not backup, but different angles, and mm-hmm. shooting shooting at one hundred twenty frames per second, um, and and higher on the Epic, and you know shooting stuff at 60 on the Scarlet and it, it mixed really well. The, the couple times that I would have wanted to shoot higher resolution as far as frame sizing is when I was doing a couple kind of planned visual effects shots on, uh, on the Kessler, on the Kessler gear that I was using, like the, the shuttle pod, um, where if I was able to punch in about three times more, uh, it, it definitely would have helped because there were certain things I needed to to crop out, certain fixtures and certain lights that were hanging or rigging that I that I didn't want to get in frame. And if I, if I'm punching in on a 1920 by 1080 acquired image, I'm definitely going to start losing you know a lot of the frame and, and and detail that I that I wanted. If I had you know 4K, you know I can punch in and and not worry about that. So that's definitely where. Um, I felt, you know, like I wanted to have an epic that shot, you know, that high of a frame rate would have been awesome. I mean, I think for me, there are occasions where, you know, it just isn't high enough frame rate at at 120 or even uh, around that on the epic. But by the same token, some action sequences, as well, you can shoot them very high speed. And of course, that means they're moving very slowly across screen. They're actually in real life moving very, very quickly. (laughs) And so (laughs) to get your framing right can sometimes be really difficult, especially if there's any need to uh, move the camera based on the action that you're seeing in front of you. So if someone goes off a a jump, for example, you sort of know where they're going, but you don't exactly know where they're going. And to find them, uh, if you sort of zoomed in, can be a little harder. Obviously, you can shoot a little wider on an Epic and then blow it up in post. It can hide let's say, uh, less than perfect camera work a little more easily. But I guess yeah. there, is no, there is no one perfect camera. No, there, there definitely isn't. I mean, that's why I, I brought a couple cameras on this shoot. Obviously, the, the, the main camera was supposed to be, you know, testing out, seeing how the mirror worked, but also that um, I knew the Epic and Scarlet so well that I knew that if something were, were to happen, 
I always had the Epic and the Scarlet there as go-to. And, and that although they weren't the highest frame rate that I may have wanted for the shots, I know that the the quality was definitely going to be there. And then, you know, obviously I could have time remapped 120 more with, you know, you know, with whatever I wanted to use, Twixter or, or just traditional um, speed ramping and nuke or After Effects. Um, but, but yeah, I, I, I totally agree that, you know, it's, it's not, there is no just one perfect camera. And I think a lot of, a lot of these cameras that, that can shoot higher frame rates are, are great. You know, it's great to have an Epic and a Phantom. And if you can have both, obviously I would be greedy and always want to have, you know, a Phantom, uh, for, for, you know, anything high speed that I really wanted to do, but also, um, if I could just meld them into one, it would be it would be great. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we don't expect to get just to have just one lens that does everything, and I don't think exactly. one camera being great has to, by definition, make another camera bad. Um, so it's really just you know knowing where where it's appropriate to go for the mirror and and where it's going to you know suit you best, and uh, where it's you know appropriate that you want to go for uh, something else, and and then use that when that's best. Um, and certainly, the world's a healthier place for having choice. Oh, I totally agree. I, the, the more choices, the better. Now, look, I'm going to just shift gears completely now for a second and just flag something. Uh, NAB is just around the corner. Um, we're going to be there, and uh, you're going to be there. And in fact, you're talking. Now, tell me about that, and what day are you uh, talking at NAB? Not with us, of course, but uh, separately. <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll definitely be by to see you guys. Um, I'm speaking at the Vitec booth which is the parent company of uh o'connor and light panels um and petrol and, and a bunch of other brands and i'm a keynote speaker for o'connor this year which i'm pretty excited about that is uh monday at uh 3, 3 p.m yep yes and uh how can people you know is it just can you just rock up there's is there a url you should go to do you have to register that kind of thing yeah i th- um on the vitec uh, i think there's a if, it's hard to know exactly the site, but if uh, you search for Vitech Live, uh, it's it's up on the Vitech uh, booth, we- uh, the, the website for Vitech. They have a link where you can sign up for a bunch of the different talks. There's uh, a lot of great cinematographers and and directors and industry people speaking at the different uh, uh, at different times throughout you know NAB. Um, you can register uh, for each person's uh, speaking engagement on on the website for Vitech. And I think the URL is actually Vitech, which is V I T E C Live Event dot com. And there's no um, there's no spaces in that. And if you go to that, uh, I, I don't know whether you can just turn up on the day. I'm guessing you might be able to, but I think sometimes you might be able to. Sometimes with these things, it's a little dangerous. And in addition to you speaking, there are a bunch of other good speakers, aren't there? Oh yeah, um, I'm excited to see a couple too. You know, Rod, uh, Rodney Charters is going to be there. Uh, Vincent Lafaray, uh, Philip Bloom, um, uh, Freddie Wong, who's very famous on YouTube. So it should be pretty interesting with uh, everybody having different backgrounds. Yeah, no, it definitely is. It's funny, you know, uh, for me, NAB has really taken on a live action component that it never used to have. There's a lot more interest for me because I guess in the old days it was just broadcast cameras and those big studio beasts on pedestals didn't interest me that much. But nowadays there is just a heck of a lot of really interesting stuff uh, covering a, a range of filmmakers. So uh, it's great stuff. Yes, yeah, definitely is. 
Okay, well, thanks so much for talking to us, man. We really appreciate it. All right, thanks a lot, Mike. Thanks, Jim. Awesome. Thank you for that chat. Excellent. I'm really keen to look at the footage. Uh, so as you mentioned, he's actually doing talking live on Vitex uh, stand at but NAB. Luckily, it doesn't clash with us. Yeah, everybody wants to have everything. That's on why we're on Tuesday. This day on, <laughs> yeah, Monday sixteenth. Uh, he's talking at three p.m. Uh, I guess that's uh, at the Vitex stand. I'm trying to work it out. Anyway, there's links to the show notes as to uh, there's a lot of people talking on 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 there uh, for Vitex. Uh, Vince Lafare and Bill Frakes and uh, the lovely uh, Rodney Charters. Um, and so yeah, three p.m. Uh, Jim's going to do that. Plus, I imagine the footage can be screening on on Phantom's uh, stand as well. Yep. So, yeah, that'll be excellent. It's funny, you know, it used to be anybody, everyone held their cards close to their chest. As you started the show off by pointing out, the Sony isn't. Yeah, and it's only when you get there on the ground that last day and you find out what's happening. But now what's happening is everyone says what they're going to do. You even mm. know what footage they're going to be showing on their booth beforehand mm. so that they stand some chance of getting your attention and so that you know to go and look at their booth to see the footage, you know what I mean? There's a couple of people still holding their cards close to the chest. I think, well, Red is, obviously. but And I, Panavision. We shall see okay. what they've got to do if they actually have a... I don't think they have a stand. I don't know. Well, we'll have to work that out. I'm hoping then they may uh, drop their load um, at the show somehow. Uh, yeah, okay. Thank you, Jim. <laughs> so, um, that's it, isn't it? We uh, almost? Yes. No, not uh, quite. Let's Wait, what there's more. There's more? Yes, there's some Twitter shout outs. Oh, yes, there's always that. Indeed. It will be Jim Gadulgadick. <laughs> Sorry, Jim. It'll be Jim Gadulgadick. Uh, he is Filmbot on Twitter. And well worth, uh, he's an avid Twitterer and he's actually, again, one, someone who's out there shooting, not just talking about it, uh, as we've heard. But uh, he's listed himself as dad, skateboarder, snowboarder, editor, VFX artist and filmmaker. So Actually, I do have a Twitter shout out. I said I didn't have one, but I have cool. one. At Jim Cameron. Of course. He's been pretty avidly uh, tweeting as well. Uh, somebody commented, I think it was David from Variety, that Jim Cameron was doing the, um, you know, overseeing and prep stuff, uh, overseeing stuff on Titanic 3D while prepping for the deep sea challenge. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, Titanic 3D comes out. In fact... Uh, it must Ian, be any minute because it's the 100th anniversary any second, isn't it? Yeah, and also Ian from our office has already seen it. Um, so he says it's it's good. And I can't really discuss it yet. But anyway... <laughs> at NAB, Titanic, the movie had been out 100 years. I know it's but, pretty dated. But, but <laughs> at NAB... They're actually doing a uh, retrospective on Titanic as well. There's a special panel. But anyway, Jim Cameron doing Titanic 3D while preparing for the Deep Sea Challenge is pretty much like John Glenn overseeing the post on Lawrence of Arabia before doing a Mercury launch. That was a good analogy. (laughs) That's true. Um, I always liked that uh, when Spielberg was doing Schindler's List, he's like shooting this sort of completely traumatic thing. He just finished, he'd just finished, uh, he'd finished um, Jurassic Park. Uh, under budget, under schedule, even though they had half of their sets wiped out through a massive like cyclonic storm thing, finished under schedule and then immediately on planes off to uh, off to Europe to shoot Schindler's List, and he would be shooting this traumatic uh, 
human story, of course, uh, during the day, and then at night he'd be on the satellite to ILM dealing with uh, CGI dinosaurs. With CineSync. Yeah, so he'd be, yeah, exactly. He'd be breaking, you know, breaking, uh, generating some beautiful work, uh, Academy Award, uh, to win Academy Award winning work, uh, while he's um, groundbreak, doing groundbreaking CGI that never been seen before um, after wrapping on schedule. That's, you know, again, astounding. Well, Jace, our next show is going to be coming from the uh, gambling-filled Sodom and Gomorrah that is Las Vegas. Um, This is obviously... If uh, only it could be held somewhere else. Right after NAB. um, Well, right after Easter is when we're meant to be sort of putting out the next step, which is NAB. So it'll all be folded into that. So uh, please check out the details. Uh, Because of the generosity of people like you and the Foundry who really put their hand in their pocket uh, as I say on the Tuesday live from the Foundry's booth uh, we'll be going out um, uh, so please check that out I mean yes all day Tuesday all day Tuesday if you're at NAB come down to the Foundry booth we'll be giving away free things Jason will be buying margaritas and stuff but if um, you're just not which is the whole point of this not able to make it um, you'll be able to go live online and watch we'll be hours and hours and hours and we may if we can even repeat it um, right after but yes on the Tuesday uh, Vegas time we'll be corralling and carousing and doing carousing so the you need to be uh, probably the Twitter feeds is probably a good place to get a heads up on what's happening and and as as well as obviously FX uh, FX FX Guide would be the best place FXGuide.com FXGuide.com but if to up to the minute of where we are what's happening about to roll a show uh, etc would be follow Mike follow me follow uh, FX Guide is it Twitter? Yeah, I think you've just, in this particular case, follow my Twitter feed or your Twitter feed is a yeah. good thing for. But, you know, the yes. whole point of the live thing is you don't have to worry, right? Because we'll be online. We tried this at the Canon event and we got completely overrun. Mm. So that's why we're doing the um, <laughs> Kickstarter esque thing to try and have a much bigger bandwidth and a much bigger setup for doing it. Yeah. Um, the feed will come to you. Because honestly, the the Canon event, man, we just got wiped out with uh, people hitting us on that day. Yeah. That's it. Cool. Well, thanks, guys. Next time we talk, we'll be sodoming and gomorring. There you go. (laughs) See you, guys. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.